Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your host, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Welcome to another edition of Inside the Firm. This is a special homeowner's edition. We are here with Lindsay Fox, uh, one of our co-hosts and main featured on the Monday morning editions. I'm also here with Lance Psycho, our um, mic man, and I am your host, Alex Gore. The official host. And this is episode three of the homeowner's edition. And what are we going to be talking about today? I think Lindsay is going to cue us up and talk about the process um, and, and talk about what is actually happening with an architect or an interior designer or a designer. Yeah, I'm going to call this the brass tacks episode. Um, so I want to focus on uh, how an owner knows that they're ready to start uh, active construction. Um, but first, I kind of wanted to get your input when you get a, when a client calls you up, what are the first steps that you need to start a project out successfully? I, what homeowners might not know is you are basically handing over the land to us. And that means something difficult, different because you can't physically move the land into our office, but you have to move it digitally. So that means you need a property survey. A lot of times you'll need a topological survey, depending on where it is, and then a geological survey. So the property survey is pretty self-explanatory. It's property lines and it has setbacks. A lot of times the most simple one is called an ILC, Improvement Location Certificate. The other one that you might hear is ALTA. It's just a standard. ALTA is just a standard that the surveying community has made up um, so that everyone's on the same page. And that property survey has, like I said, the property lines, boundaries, and then uh, utilities, where the sewer is, where the water's coming in, where the electricals is coming in. Now, that survey can also have the topological contours of, you know, is your site moving up and down? What's the grading? So those can actually kind of be combined in one. You can go the simplest form, which is the ILC to the Ulta to then adding the, the topo. So it's like an accordion effect of that. And then the second largest thing is, especially in Colorado, in some places it's not needed, but a geological survey is a surveyor goes out, digs down, bores down and figures out what's happening with the land. In Colorado, this is a, a huge deal. And that dictates what kind of foundation you're going to have, what you can fit on there, where your water table is. If you're making a basement and water is three feet below, you're going to flood your basement. Um, so those are the most technical things. The untechnical things are, I'll let Lance go about what they need, what they want to do. Yeah. So there's a word that I think the industry likes to use and it's the right one. And that's program. Matter of fact, I just had a gentleman walk in from, uh, off the street, came into the office and we had a little meet and greet. And uh, he said, he's going to put together a program for us. And what that means is what kind of spaces are you wanting in the house? Right? So if, if we just, you could think of it as simple as I want three bedrooms, two baths, one of the baths has to be a master bedroom, obviously a kitchen, living, dining, et cetera, et cetera. It's really up to you to paint the picture of what you're looking for. And then it, it once, and we can, if it's just, if you hand us a detailed, uh, or a basic list, 
Um, that's a great starting point. And then we can interject as designers and start asking you a little bit more detailed and nuanced questions that maybe we have from an insider perspective about those kind of spatial relationships. Are there anything, um, are there any hot button points of like, maybe you don't want the bedrooms on the west side or the east side, uh, stuff like that. Uh, it is good also at that point to start talking about budget. I know um, people have numbers in their head that they are thinking about for architecture fees, engineering fees, construction fees, but at some point we have to start negotiations and, and really getting down to, again, the brass tacks of like, what is it going to cost for the architecture and engineering? And then on top of that, what is it going to cost for construction? So we can start painting the reality of the picture and then, and then kind of tie the whole thing and package it all together um, with an idea of moving ahead of what should the final program kind of be moving in before we design? Because you know, let's say you're asking for four bedrooms, but we kind of do some rough math and say, well, with your construction budget, and honestly, if that's as high as you can go, we might have to squeeze one of those bedrooms out. Yep. And then for larger projects, I really want to touch on this because I know our audience deals with a whole range of things. So houses, that program can be decided by the client. Sometimes if a client is doing a larger project, meaning land with multiple units, or let's just say a museum or anything like that, they honestly might not know because how many units fit there? They don't know. Uh, the museum, it might be a committee with a donor. How much space can we do? They literally don't know. You know, they might have X million of dollars. What can we do? And that's literally called pre-design. And the reason it's called pre-design is that you need to at least give them, give them that program. So then you can bill, well, put a proposal together for architectural, structural, HVAC, mechanical, all, all those other things. Because if you just go, here's a piece of land, um, plumbing engineer, what is your fee? You're like, what are you building? We haven't figured that out yet. So just know that sometimes there is a step even before the full architectural contract or other professionals called, um, you know, basically pre-designed services. Well, to verify that like what you want to do on the land is legal and viable. 100%. Um, yep. So when you're talking about like the site survey, soil reports, town requirements, is that something that you expect the owners to have in hand prior to their meeting with you? Or is that something that they hire you to procure? They do not have it prior because they do not know. And normally we say, generally speaking, there's been a very <laughs> select few that have come to us with all of these things that we're talking about in, in, in with everything ready to go. And I just want to reassure everybody that's listening. It's, it's okay if you don't have the other stuff. Um, ready to go. We'll, we'll help guide you through that process and give you an understanding. That's that's part of our due diligence for, for your project. Um, but it's also, they should know that it's not the architects or designers um, responsibility, nor should they do, uh, hey, we're going to go out and give you, or we're going to hire the surveyor for you to survey your property. We're going to hire the soils engineer for your property. And a lot of times, um, probably Alex more than me, we also maybe aren't hiring those other engineer consultants. We, for us, we prefer it to be a direct owner to engineer contract versus us. Everybody practices a little bit differently, but there's actually some serious liability issues as soon as you start putting more people under your umbrella. Um, but a good architect and a reputable one or a designer or builder should be able to refer you to people that they work with to execute those kinds of things. And, and why we don't do it, it's important the surveys for them and the geotext for them is because it, 
it is a professional thing, meaning the client should bring you the site in case there was an error in that. That's why we recommend three people for each of those areas, you know, so that, so that they can pick, right? Um, it, it's hard to be responsible for incoming information because we rely on that so heavily. So it, yeah, it's the client's responsibility effects. to bring it to you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's perfectly reasonable for an owner to uh, get a referral from you or getting more than one referral and going out and getting all of this stuff early um, in the project development and having that be something that they manage directly. So that kind of like feeds into what is the role of the owner on a construction project and kind of dig into that a little bit. They're the team leader. They can be the coach. Mm-hmm. They can be the quarterback. Um, they can be the general manager. And, and I say those just because the draft is coming up. Um, but, but I think people get that there's different levels of engagement that they can have, meaning a quarterback on the field, calling the plays, telling like, Hey, move this couch, move this couch, right. To, uh, a coach just essentially saying like, Hey, we're going to run this play, go run it. So literally saying, we're going to run this house with this program, you designer, you know, make the decisions and we'll see how that play went. And then, you know, we'll iterate from there. Um, to a, a general manager where, and this hasn't happened so much, but it's literally been, here's the program, here's the budget. Well, you come up with what you come up with. We like your stuff, you know? Yep. Um, yeah. Yes, I find but, that there's been a huge, there's huge swings in the level of involvement our clients want to have in each of that um, stage of a project or the yep. project in general. But each one of those three, is they are making decisions and setting direction. You know, um, it's just yeah. how, how deep they go on that. The general manager still has to set the direction of where everything's going. I think it's helpful for owners to understand that they do take all of the risk. I feel like there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of perception out there that the builder's taking the risk, the, the architect's taking the risk. Well, in reality, this is all owner's money, owner's property. And to have them understand that, uh, yeah, you need to be thoughtful about who, who's in your team and also the culture that's in your team. And we've had a lot of circumstances where we can have a great design team, we can have great uh, specialty trades involved. And then you get this one person that the owner is like, oh, but it's a buddy of mine. And I'd like to use them to be the GC. And then I get a document that says your project will cost $160,000 with no details. And I had to go back to the owner and say, let's talk about your team culture. (laughs) Because if you're not, everyone needs to kind of have a similar uh, tone to the project, a camaraderie to getting this project done. Yeah. Um, those are the best. Those are the best teams when when they're assembled correctly, and that's why I think Alex's analogy to a general manager is just about perfect. Like if a general yeah. manager, yeah. He, I mean, if a general manager in, in in sports is a perfect perfect example because that's their goal. I mean, they are they're selecting uh, the coach, the all the assistants, uh, the trainers, draft analysis, their draft analysis. <laughs> then they're working. Yeah. So so really, that is that is about the best way to do it. And so um, you know. As you, you're really setting yourself up for success as an owner if you basically uh, are, are doing your due diligence and, and really um, understanding the workflow and the process of each person that you're going to potentially hire so that you are, you are creating sort of this microcosm of a culture. I think that was a great 
other another great word that you used, um, Lindsay, to do that. And those ones are the ones that work the work the best. Yeah, if yep. you find someone that can't respond to an email or a text message in a timely manner, when you've got just other design pe people that are dependent on their information, it's not going to go well. Not at all. Yeah, or they're or they're emailing maybe after hours, and if you run a firm like ours and it's very strict, like we're not we're not talking after four or five or six p.m. or on the weekends, and uh, it just it, you're gonna it's it, it, it that'd be like if uh, if the corner if the wide receiver just never ran his routes um, in the way he was supposed to do it, yeah, literally literally that yeah. <laughs> that would be awful when you're um so when we're pulling a project together. Can you talk a little bit about some key documents that uh, the owner needs to have in hand to basically run this play to a touchdown? Gosh, we're going to keep using. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all Al's fault today. Yeah. No, just so you know, I will call the GC a quarterback. What we're doing with Tiverbilt is that I, I call us like the offensive coordinator. Oh, so this is perfect. Yeah, nice. yeah. yeah, I've done that. I did build my entire house around a really – awesome football Sunday layout. My kitchen, I can be behind the stove. I can see my TV. I got the full sectional for the rest of the yeah. folks to be comfy. So going back, sorry, distraction. Uh, yeah. All right. What well, are the key documents the owners need to have? The big one is the playbook, which is the construction documents. And what's key, and there's some other things that Lindsay or Lance could get into, but I'll just touch on that. It's not only do you have the construction documents, but it's what's in that, mm -hmm. you know, what's in your, your playbook. Um, because it could just be 10 pages of, of 10 different pages, uh, you know, plays, <clears throat> which is, which is, which is maybe fine for football. But if you're talking about architecture, not only do you need, you know, floor plans, elevation sections, but with the new technology, why aren't 3d views provided? Why aren't materials takeoff provided? And then I mean 3D views, not just for visual, mm -hmm. but 3D views of the structure and how it goes together. Because plans are very difficult to look at and there's a lot of information on there. So also, if you are the offensive of, of coordinator, right, in this, and you have a play, right, everyone knows in a football play, you mark up where people are going to go on the offense. The defense, if you marked up where everyone was going to go on the defense and every different option that you could take and every uh, move that a running back could make, it would be crazy complicated and they wouldn't be like, they'd be like, this is be illegible. This is just a bunch of lines. Like you're basically saying, here's the play, but I can also do everything, you know? So looking at not only do you have that playbook, which is the construction documents, but how clean, how clear is it? so that you can get this message of this building, of this call across to actually be made. Yeah, and one thing I would recommend for the owners would be um, act, go out and <clears throat> make, once you get them from your architect, really take a look at those, print them off, take a look at them, and, and maybe have them walk you through, hey, how do I read these drawings? Because I think that's one of the failures of most practicing architects and designers is, we know how to read the drawings. We know all what all the little symbols mean. We just take it for granted that like the general public is going to know, or even our, even subcontractors, if you put their builder hat on, that they're going to do it. It has been incredibly helpful for us, for instance, with like our framers when we, when we do build is I only had to show them once. 
how to read the drawings. I only actually, then our internal carpenters, I only had to show them once and they got it. They just understand it. So if you if you're an owner, just feel, I mean, this is part of the deal is that architect should explain to you, like, here's how you navigate the drawings because it is, we're putting together these constructive documents that are essentially a book. It's a book with an index. It's got all these other symbols and everything. Um, that way you as the owner can really keep that general manager role going. So then when you're, you know, if, when you're working with your contractor and maybe you're out there too working with the contractor and the subcontractors, every, you are able to disseminate to them. Like here's, Hey guys, I understand you, you're not seeing that detail because let me show you how to read these drawings. Then, then you're in kind of more control. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to highlight that what you need on a construction set for permit uh, is different than what you would need potentially to to actually execute construction. And so that's why I kind of break it into there's construction documents for permit and then there can be design documents. So not everything has to get submitted as one full set, um, but that doesn't mean that the, there's not information uh, that still needs to be disseminated out to your team. And this is where I really love leveraging the building information model is because I can get them into that. I can get every trade contractor into my building information model and do a tour and say, this is what this structure is supposed to look like and get everyone on the same page and have a great opportunity for value engineering uh, and take advantage of like little layout changes that can happen uh, to make the most efficient layout for a particular project. Um, there's also the to-do list. And this is known as the scope document. And you guys have had to do this for your for your construction projects. Can you go a little bit more into what a scope document is? That's on you, Lindsay. <laughs> That's on you. So the scope is the to-do list. So it's the full list of what each trade is gonna do for your project. So when the owner goes to construction, a scope document is typically provided to you by a builder which is in their proposal, which says for framing, I'm gonna do blank, 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 and blank. For plumbing, I'm gonna do blank, 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 and blank. And uh, how thick that, that to-do list is, that to-do list actually mirrors the construction documents in a basically a Word document format. And it kind of translates it into a, a, a part of your construction contract. In and honestly, how we handle it might be differently is that whether we're the GC or someone else is the GC, the subs are providing their, their contract and their bids and their bids are laying out, yeah. like, like you were saying, plumbing and sometimes they'll say rough plumbing, finished plumbing. They're providing these fixtures, not these fixtures. Um, we as the architect aren't providing them with that list. We are providing them with the construction documents. Right, so the builder will generally get the construction documents and then he'll create a scope of work document, whether it's an aggregated uh, document from each of the subcontractors that he'll be working with or whether he'll write it up as, or she will write it up as her own internal document that's being shared with you. But that's really a very valuable uh, document because when you're pricing out different general contractors, um, the level of detail that's in each of those scope documents written from the construction documents can change and vary your price that you're getting on your project drastically. And you don't know what you're, what's included in their 
pricing proposal if it's not kind of written out for you to read through. Yep. And then in our experience, I would say this is way more, this is way important for the general contractor because on interiors, I could see why, but on a whole house, generally the owner does not want to review and look at, at, at those bids. So it's really important for the contractor yeah, to make sure that they're covering the yeah. owner's butt with the scope of uh, work on each, with each sub and you know, each line item for sure. Yeah, but so an owner, right. but an owner, but an owner should like be prepared to ask these questions. I think that's the point of this, Lindy. Lindsay is under. Make sure you're asking your general contractor, like, okay, I just want to make clear: is the whole scope of work from top to bottom included? Um, maybe, and then maybe ask them to like give you a couple examples or walk you through everything. I mean, obviously, uh, it, like you said, it's the, they're taking a giant risk building anything. As the owner, it's their checkbook. So I think that should be part of the deal. Yep. And then the other thing they need is their shopping list, which opens up who's responsible for the material selection on a project. And I, I think it goes two ways. One, it, the best way is either with an interior designer or with the architectural staff is to pick out the majority of those things. Like literally pick out the siding, the roofing, um, the windows, and then there's a whole list of interior you know, people mainly think cabinets and flooring, but there's specialty lighting, there's handles, um, there's, uh, door, you know, I mean, the doors, the handles on those doors, the list goes down. So it's, it's better to get those in line basically before you start construction, whether it's the architect slash interior designer, or if it's the contractor and they have those services, it's to ask, okay, how do, how do we pick all those? What, you know, what are my options? Am I going to a showroom? Are you sending me things? You know, what's happening there? Yeah, so we'll call that the specifications and selections document. And that's supposed to have your full list of materials, not necessarily your rough materials, but definitely your finished materials. And then even now it's more important to understand that specs and selections list because there's lead times on everything. And an, a builder, a successful build, needs to be able to project the lead time on, on each of those materials so that they can be on site for install when the specialty trade is there um, to install them. Um, and I think the, spec, the specifications and selections uh, document is the most award-winning home builders will not go to field construction until that document is like 99% done. They it's do, the best way to do it. They do not want to be on site like with you still hemming and hawing over what your tile is going to look like. They need it because yeah. that's they're quarterbacking here. They're not, they're not <laughs> intended to hold your hand through those selections. But I would say architects do have, especially on the exterior materials, interior designers for the interior materials, um, and then really getting into uh, what standards are being applied to that material selection. I don't like builders doing it because it's usually like a cost scenario mm -hmm. versus like a quality scenario, but that, that is a little bit project specific. Um, and then the last part of this like document system that you need is something that conveys clear expectations. And we refer to that as your contract terms and conditions, which is who's doing what 
when, when's it supposed to be done? Um, and you guys have gone through this build process before. What are some like key points that need to be in that terms and conditions document? For construction or for architectural? architectural? Or construction. So for that, I think the, the main thing that's helpful is honestly the, the schedule. And that's, that's how we do it and break it apart. Because in the schedule, you can talk about the subs. Mm-hmm. And you can talk about um, what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And we are open book. So our basically terms and conditions contract, we have a basic contract. But they're not only able to see the schedule, they're also able to see all the folders of all the subs and all the bids. And they're able to see the bids and the master bid schedule, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I agree with you 100% that everything needs to be picked out. But sometimes it's you have a cabinet budget of you know $15,000 and they know it's $15,000 and they haven't picked it out yet. And so they know they go above because they see something fancy in a showroom that they want, which is fine, but that's how much we, we budgeted for it, for it. So clearly showing for us, and not everyone does this, but like opening up the book so that you can see the cost and the schedule allows them to take more investment in it and make those decisions. Yeah. And that kind of opens up a whole nother category that we could get into, which is a uh, fixed fee versus open book uh, contract systems. Um, which might be a little deep right now, but what you're referring to uh, in this open book is that the owner does get to see each of those specialty trade rates and generally gets an allowance for the install on certain materials. And then when the selection is actually made, you go uh, pair that against the allowance that was in your scope document and you say are you plus or minus did you come under budget on the allowance or over budget and typically you'd get a credit back if you've gone under if you've picked a less expensive tile for your tile install or you uh on the the next benchmark payment you add you know the additional funds if you picked a more expensive tile for that for that install um and that, that part of the terms and conditions also needs to include what happens when things go wrong? You know, what's, you know, are we mediating if things go wrong? But start looking for that language because that language is in there for the owner's protection because, it's, remember, owner takes all the risk. Mm-hmm. And I've, I don't, owners often fear like contract language, but that contract language actually does save them. Um, and that's something that needs to get valued when you're, when you're looking for service professionals, if they're giving you a contract, say, thank you and read it. Yeah. And I think the problem, honestly, is that if you're not clear, let's say you're just giving a price for a house and then they, and it's literally just a one line. And then you ask them and say, Hey, does this include everything? Is this going to get my house done? Right. I want to say most people aren't malicious right? They give that price for the house. And then all of a sudden, three quarters of the way through, they realize something was missed. And then now they want the homeowners to pay for it, right? And then now you have this, the, the, this problem where if it's open booking, if you're working through everything and for some reason, like they, they also see where it was missed, why it was missed, and that it wasn't included in any of the discussions and any of the documentations, they don't feel like 
in the first scenario, it's like, oh, I'm paying for something you already promised. Mm-hmm. In the second scenario, it's, oh, an honest mistake happened. I never paid for this. I can understand why I might need to pay for this. I'm not going to say it's that easy of a conversation, but it's just a really different setup. Yeah, the open book system allows for um, a more fluid construction process that creates a successful way to navigate through, I would say, errors and omissions or indecision because you can't always decide what's going to be where before field construction is started. And, and I have talked way too much on this podcast, so I'm going to bow out and Lance will take over, maybe even do an Al voice impression or make up an Al answer. Um, but I will talk to everyone later and keep on rocking and rolling. We'll do. All right, uh, where are we at? So we left off at the last uh, podcast talking about when, or we were going to talk about when to bring in a builder, which is a huge question that I feel like a lot of homeowners face. Um, the other one is when you get asked, what's your budget? Um, so what is your thought on when to bring in a builder when you are just the architect? Because we know that you're also a builder. Yeah. What, what I like to tell clients is, uh, <clears throat> I say, obviously the sooner, the better. If it, honestly, if you could find, if you guys could select a builder at the same time, you're selecting an architect, that would be great. And one of the questions they say and have after that is, and rightly so, is, uh, well, how do we know what they're going to charge us? And I say, look, there's two different ways of looking at this. And it's one is a closed book scenario and one is an open book scenario. And then I describe, you know, how we do business. The, and I, I, we're big advocates of the open book. And then, um, I, 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 you know, I advise them basically like, if it was me, I would be looking for an open book contractor who is cost plus. And so that means, you know, let's say your foundation is going to be uh, materials and labor from the sub $100,000. The general contractor is going to add his percentage onto that. And then that's how he covers his fees, his coordination. And it's a lot of work being a general contractor. So they're they're worth, you know, what they, what they say. And I tell them, this is going to be a um, one to two year and possibly even longer relationship because maybe you're, you have them come back and do warranty work, you know, after the fact, plus there's just all buildings, you know, are static objects that are in a dynamic world. So there's going to be things that need to need to happen to your building maintenance wise and everything like that. Uh, so it's, it should be in, in a personality interview too. Do you really, do you like working with this person? Will you like working with this person? Treat them as if you're one of your employees that you're going to hire and you're going to have a long-term relationship. I think multiple interviews are important and, and then narrow it down. So if, if in an ideal world, if they can select that contractor at the same time they're selecting the architect, that's, that's ideal. Uh, because then once we get into um, kind of the second phase or third phase of design, where we're starting to develop elevations and we have a basic set of plans set together, they can start at least pricing stuff out uh, using their empirical evidence based on their most recent builds. Um, I know that's a problem right now uh, with the way inflation is going and it's, it's difficult for people to price things out. And now they're kind of requesting us to get maybe into the third phase of design. So you get through engineering, then they can really start pricing stuff out. But the, but the sooner the better, because uh, they will, you know, we just had an OAC meeting and what that is, is an owner architect contractor meeting uh, for a very modern house that we're doing up in, up in the mountains as, as the architects only. And the contractor was there 
And what we were doing is we, we were tag teaming as a good team, uh, educating the, the owners about different framing systems and, and how all that plays out and, and what they, what they mean, the pluses, the minuses and everything like that. What, can you remind me what your second, the second, what was the second well, I question? Mean, to go, to go back to like, you were, we were talking about closed book versus open book. Um, one of the reasons why that's so powerful is the open book system means that you, their owner has some visibility in, and also some, um, accountability tracing throughout the project. So when I agree with you, you bring in your builder early, but your builder is a general contractor, which means he's going to sub, he or she's going to subcontract out different specialty trades and having the owner be connected to whom those trades are is important because it's those trades that are going to maintenance your home. You know, if you have uh, HVAC, which is the heating, uh, ventilation, air conditioning, you know, you're going to need service on that. Mm-hmm. So while it's great to have a general contractor that has a great subcontractor for that install, uh, for an owner to be able to have a continued relationship with that specialty trade for maintenance is, is so very important. Um, but the one thing I really wanted to highlight is that nothing is free. So when you're bringing that con- that builder or contractor in uh, early, hopefully I agree with you at the same time that you're bu- you're bringing in your architect. Um, this kind of goes back to that soft cost, like that ten to fifteen percent. Are you paying that builder for his consultation or her consultation? Because that's that's adding significant value, and it's taking significant time in the close book system you're going to be paying for that. It's just not going to be line itemed. And when you're in an open book, you have an opportunity to see how much, how much that particular part of the, the, the project is going to cost. Um, And then my other, the others, what's your budget? Oh yes. Yes. So uh, every single owner and I'm, I put on the owner hat as well because I built my own custom house. I know you, I know you've done a substantial remodel the years too. And then uh, we've, we've, de- we've developed and, and stuff like that. So, uh, even, even, even after, you know, knowing where construction costs are, like you always have a, uh, pie in the sky idea that somehow we're going to get this, we're going to get it done for, you know, X, Y, and Z, and we're smarter than the whole industry and all of that. So I, I never see an owner come in with a, a realistic budget, um, that we eventually, once we do what they what they really want and they need to do for their project, the, the, the numbers always come in higher. So uh, as the owner, you're going to come in with your own numbers in your head and that is okay. It's okay that you are, especially if this is your first time ever doing this or building something and designing and working with people that you, that you really don't know. So you're just taking a guess. Um, you're not going to offend me. Um, you're not going to offend Lindsay. With if you're off, I think just be prepared for like there's going to be some sticker shock because especially now with inflation. So, uh, that but the discussion has to happen at some point and we have to come up and then you just have to be realistic, right? So, it's like what I said kind of to circle back before. Let's say they come in with like a um, a budget where it's just not going to work for the four bedrooms and they got to cut one bedroom off or, what, or whatever, yeah, so right? It, goes back, it ties into that programming, and so yep. yes that that conversation is key 
And so I find it interesting. I would like all professionals to stop asking what your budget is without getting some sort of programming understanding from the owner first. And that that's that's been tough for me from from the owner side is that having having service professionals asking me what my budget is, I want to throw it back to them and say, what my what should my but what should my budget be? Because this is my programming. This is my list. Exactly, and that's a perfect way to hopefully start thinking about it. Um, we're not trying to kill your guys' dreams. We're just trying to make sure that we can tackle and or, well, that we can design your dreams. To, and then become a reality. And so we have to have these difficult discussions right away rather now than later, because if we wait and have them later and we just pretend like, oh yeah, somehow again, Bill, Sam, Sue, whatever the GC is, is going to be smarter than everybody else. Or even you as the owner is going to be smarter than everybody else and, and figure out how to cut costs um, or, or get things done cheaper because your uncle Bob does this and that and the other. The risk is then you've spent all this money on the designers, maybe even have put a deposit down on a, a contractor, like you were saying for the consultation fee, Lindsay, as they walk you through the bidding process and everything and the design process. Uh, you, what if you have to go back to the drawing board? Well, all of a sudden then we're going reverse and we're going back to like, you know, first or second stage of design and really cutting off square footage. It just messes the process. It just makes the process pretty messy in that sense. Um, so I think that's what I would have to say about budget. Yeah, I would say about budget is when I hear the programming from our clients, I will say to them, I would like you to allocate between fifty and $60,000 onto this project and inform them that I already have a baseline understanding of what that type of programming has been running historically. Um, Tiber Built has, of course, run into the same challenges in regards to being predictive pre-COVID what we called historic cost data. So there's a difference between between having external numbers and internal numbers. Historic cost data is like just over the years, I've done several projects. This one's kind of similar to that one. That one came in at like, you know, 40K. That was like 10 years ago. So like probably around 50K based on, you know, the information and the level of finish that you guys are talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, of course, have run into that same difficulty uh, we, the project that I'm referring to when I actually took it out for bid proposal, which is different. So your internal historic numbers are all internal. You're not going to any subcontractors to get those numbers yet. Um, right. And that's a, there's a key point as to why, which we can circle back to. Uh, but when I took that project out to bid, it came in at $130,000. And so based on that programming, based on everything we did for the design, we were still double what we wanted to be. Wow. Um, so that's why like, we've kind of reworked our uh, construction management services so that we can be a little more control into the subcontractors and getting the price. We're currently on that, at that project where we've been able to bid administer, which I can go into what that is. We've been able to bid administer this project and this project is looking like it's going to be a $70,000 project, which is something that the owners are excited to move forward with. So I was very excited about that. Um, but that's the difference is having these kind of internal guiding numbers. And as a professional, being able to say to your client based on your programming, I would like you to allocate this amount of uh, um, capital to this project. 
And I hope that everyone can adopt that because that is our job. Yeah. Is helping homeowners understand because then a homeowner can say, well, if that's the case, then I can't invest that amount of money into my property. But most of the time I get a response that's probably around, that's where I'll feel comfortable investing in this property. And I think that's a much more reasonable way to approach a project than to go up to a client and say, what's your budget? But that's, it's the same thing. It's like you have to decide yeah. whether or not the design, the design phase is worth the effort. Is, yes. Is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Yep. And, and the owner should know that there's a, there's a lot of times where this doesn't get addressed. It's very common actually. And, and to, to your point about um, was the design was spending the money on the design worth the effort. A lot of projects die because they come out and it's just like, I can't afford this. Um, you guys, and we've heard it, you uh, not in a negative way of like, you guys did exactly what I wanted. Just want you to know that, but I can't afford it and we're killing it. And so like an example would be like a coffee and a chiropractor shop that we designed. It was like a, it was a, both of those things in one tenant finish. They just did not work. I mean, they just not, they did not anticipate that price and, um, you know, this was actually pre COVID. So have those discussions, have those discussions early. That's why I think it's worth the soft cost dollars. So when I say soft cost, the construction project is broken into two pieces. There's hard costs and soft costs. Mm -hmm. Uh, I look at hard costs as sticks and bricks. What's it take in physical materials to get the structure built? Uh, soft cost is what does the talent cost? To get the to get the project planned and executed successfully, um, so when an owner is working through this project, the hard cost is pretty predictable in the sense that you can count the number of two by fours that are required for a project mm -hmm. and apply a price to them. Soft cost is very different because that's all talent based. That's the individual service provider. Um, so when you're working through a design, I totally agree with you. Having a builder. Uh, informing the price at what we call vanilla box or white box stage, which is what does it take to get this structure up? Let's forget about the finishes. Let's just go to make sure there's doors, windows, and drywall. How much mm -hmm. does it cost me? That can happen very early in a project. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great way of, of basically putting that litmus test out there that is, is this, is the juice worth, worth the squeeze? Have you experienced that in your in your design workflow? Is is taking it to a point where you could get some pretty solid pricing on that white box level? Well, so yes and no, right? And so the yes is pre pre COVID, hundred percent. Post COVID, with the escalation in prices because of uh, the factory shutdowns, the tariffs, and then uh, just inflation, we're printing like this insane amount of money. Um, and then people also building too, like crazy. Like we, the inquiries are just through the roof. Everybody's building. Um, not, I don't, I, it's harder. It's much harder uh, to get those kind of white box prices where we have a basic set of drawings, but we're not really knowing exactly what the tile is. So it's, it's difficult. I think we'll get back there in maybe a year or two, hopefully, maybe if prices ever go back down and things steady and we're back to whatever normal is after all of this. Um, but, but, but some things you should still be able to kind of be where you are. I think any good contractor who just finished a bid, basically, um, they should have that empirical data that they have from that really hard bid on, say, the project X, 
when they move to project, let's see, your Y owner listening, you should be able to get to that. Hopefully you can find a contractor that can still get there, but just know that like they might come back and preface and say like, just know, you know, like steel, every, my steel bids are only good for 10 days. So this is a snapshot in time about where we're at and it's a gut check and we need to know if we're okay moving ahead or not. All um, right. And, like that. and that, that's hard cost change. Your steel yep. is changing. That's not labor changing necessarily. Yeah. That's, that's the actual like hard cost material. Uh, I, when we're talking about bringing in that builder consultant and maybe even affording their price. So uh, I've worked with some folks out of California. Owners will hire a builder as a consultant. Um, sometimes that consultant fee is waived if the owner decides to build with that builder. So that's sort of like a, a design retainer or a consulting mm-hmm. retainer that uh, basically ensures the builder that the time that they're writing in, um, the time that they're writing in uh, to this project is going to pay off either in, you know, the actual project and running it and getting a profit there, or at least that their time is covered for, for their involvement. Um, the one thing that I would like owners to kind of realize is that when you have this builder consultant, um, understand who their subcontractors are. We talked about like how they're, uh, you're going to have maintenance needs on this home in this, you know, physical structure in a dynamic world. Um, when, when, as when you're GCing, how do you decide if you're going to have an under the table trade or an over the table trade? And is that something owners need to be thoughtful about? Because I can get some really great pricings on, you know, the, the, the guy that'll show up to put the plumbing in. It's a great question. Um, so uh, we do everything over the table because as soon as you start dealing, because as much as I hate taxes, uh, I can't, I just, I, I loathe taxes. Um, at some point in your career, you're going to get an audit and uh, you just, you, you got to toe the line. And so we do everything over the table. Uh, when does it make sense to do anything under the table? I think you need to understand the risks. So I, I'm not going to say whether, when, when it is the appropriate time to or not to, I'm not going to endorse it. I'm just going to say, <laughs> here's the risks. Here's and, and Lindsay, we were talking about this kind of pregame in here. The risk is, does it, that person, because there's no um, tying record of you paying them, right? And the idea is you're basically pulling out cash, giving them money after they do their job and there's no real record of it. You know, there's no tax record of the whole thing. Uh, all of that in the transaction. And then there's probably no contract. So what is your recourse as an owner if something goes wrong and something something might go wrong? Something is bound to go wrong on at some point in everybody's build, everybody's their career. Buildings are very complicated things. Like I, like I said, they're static structures in a dynamic world. So we're having to just mitigate as best as we can in that dynamic world um, with these these static applications that we have. So that that's really your risk is it's like, it's up to you. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to save a couple thousand or is it worth it knowing you can sign a formal contract, have a warranty period with the person, call them back and, and, and work it out um, that way. Maybe the only one that would be worth anything is like, it, 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 let's say it's your own house and you're GCing it yourself and you're like, I just need to have people haul garbage off the property or something mm-hmm. like it. very menial kind of things. I think that there's no liability, hopefully 
Um, but the other thing is that, like, it could be, it could come to bite you in the butt too, as the owner in the sense of not having a recourse, um, if they do something wrong, but like, what if they get hurt on your property? Is this person have general liability insurance so that they can cover themselves in case they get hurt? So I, I think that's the way to really think about over the table versus under the table. And people do it all day long. People do the under the table thing all day long. Just, just understand yeah. your risk. When you're, when you're considering this over, over the table, under the table, and you're getting a proposal in from a general contractor and you're looking at it and one's really high and one's a little lower, that's a litmus test to understand, okay, do I get, if I get to meet the subcontractor that you're picking, then it's likely that this is all over the table and then I'm going to get yeah. lien waivers, I'm going to get a warranty, I'm going to get that other stuff. Whereas if you get these low bids, it, it could be an indicator that you've got a lot of under, under the table work, which, you know, it's not transparent. So just start asking the questions is, you know, who the subcontractors that you're working with so that the owner can kind of get a baseline. Is this price higher because this GC is working with other trade contractors that are paying workman's comp, that have their insurance, that have all of the legal layers in there to make sure that, that you're protected along with them. Yeah. You, you can't buy enough insurance. Jonathan Segal, my favorite, my favorite architect as developer, builder, contractor, whatever. Best advice he ever gave was you cannot buy as much insurance as you can get because in the end it is, it is cheap. Like you get a lot of protection for a little bit, a little bit amount of money. And at some point something could potentially go wrong. Like you, like these buildings are the biggest investments of our lives in, besides our businesses, right? And our health. So uh, just see, uh, encourage as much insurance as you can get. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important to think about, you know, what you're actually buying. Am I buying, a, you know, am I buying confidence that my project, my project and my uh, post-construction experience is going to be as positive as my construction experience? You know, is my house going to fall apart? Is there traceable accountability uh, in place if something does go wrong? And as we're like, you know, the last couple podcasts, we really kept using the phrase pro- process, process, process. Mm-hmm. And I can say all day as a professional that we have a great process, but it's kind of like saying I'm humble. Just the mm-hmm. act of saying I'm humble lacks humility. So I <laughs> wanted to kind of dig in when we say uh, is there's a clear process here. What are some key indicators that can identify to an owner that make it clear that F9 has a clear process and that they understand their own process? Well, what should that feel like? So uh, two fronts, I think. We we talked in the previous episodes exactly about that. And then, you know, so like, is it clear to you when your architect, your design professional gives you their proposal? What is their process? Is there a graphic component to it? Can they bring out, Can I, I, how many questions do you have? Or is it just clear to you? You're like, oh, I get the design process. This should be fun. Same thing with the builder. I think, uh, so the architect's going to show you hopefully a proposal maybe an example set of drawings. That's what you should be looking for. Builder side of things, you need to see a schedule. Uh, I think the clearer the schedule is for, for you to understand, and what they have this thing and it's called, and we use them, we use them, we put them together. It's called a Gantt chart. So if everybody's listening, if you're wondering how it's spelled, it's G-A-N-N-T, Gantt chart. 
and it, it's a it's been a it's been a thing for almost ever in in the modern building era. Uh, you want to understand that process of it because then because then you can take a look at their chart and you go, oh, okay. First of all, I know when the starting day is. I know when the end day is. Hopefully, this is the projection, right? We know we know weather delays. People have problems and they can't show up to work, and it shuffles around the schedule. But it's at least a starting point for discussion. And then you also understand with that the nuances of the project. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? The foundation, the framing. When is the roughs happen? When is the finishes happen? And then the other question you should be asking as an owner in that process: How do the draws, the construction draws, operate? When do I need to write? When am I going to have to be prepared to write a check? Um, and whether it's finance or they're doing it with cash, that's kind of how all that comes together. Yeah, and I would say that some of the key indicators is. Uh, one, you have to be an owner, look at those professionals and say, does it feel like my time matters to them? That my, you know, if I'm on site with them and I'm, you know, talking through the things that I need done, um, are they taking notes? This is a key mm. indicator is if they have, if there is a good process that's supporting you, are they taking notes? Um, do they have a clear pricing structure? So if I, is it just an hourly rate? How much time they're spending with me? Is it just dinging against a clock? Um, and that's okay, but make sure that that's, that expectation is very clear. And then can they walk you through the steps of their own process? Which mm -hmm. you, know, you and Alex have done a very good job about like, you know, schematic programming, schematic design and kind of going through that with the with the owners and that that's so important we've taken our clients through um you know even uh, a communications expectation in our design agreement mm -hmm. which is you know what's your primary form of communication do you like emails texting or phone calls uh you know and and sharing whether or not are can emails be are they 24 hours you know, when can I expect a response from you? And those are kind of key indicators to, to a clear process that's going to be supporting you. We also take our clients through an onboarding process, which is, do you know how to use house? Can you share an idea book? Do you want to just email us your inspiration photos <laughs> and find ways to improve what I refer to as digital literacy Yeah. in conjunction to the process? Yeah. And then, and then again, and on the, you know, to piggyback on top of what you're, what you're saying is so really um, as the owner, like don't, don't, don't be a, don't be bashful to say your preference. Um, and you know, even if it's like for me, just so you know, you would rub me the wrong way. If you said, I prefer to meet at 7 PM on a Sunday, I'd be like, man, that is family time. And I just, but not a good match. <laughs> It's kind of like, it's kind of like the budget discussion. It is not an easy discussion to have, but you, you just got to rip off the band-aids from the beginning, set the stage. And, and then, because of, because why try to force it? Like you might love this architects, uh, whoever you're going to work with or designer, their, their design style and everything. But if they're not going to, if they're not going to work in the way you want to work, it just, it sounds like a bad date for like, a year um, yeah. in a row. My wife hates when I use those analogies, by the way, but I, I can't help it. <laughs> well, I know, because it's like an ongoing relationship that's high stress. 
And we've joked about how life doesn't stop for a renovation or a build. Um, and it comes down to, you know, who's on your team and getting owners to feel like very confident that the team that the team that they're creating is is to empower them and to build their confidence. But at the end of the day, o- owner, it's it's your risk. It's your party. And mm-hmm. you're going to have to decide how things are allocated um, and trust have a certain level of trust in each of those professionals that you'll get to a point where you're not having to, you know, ping them with lots of questions because hopefully there's enough information transfer that you feel good. Yeah. Right. And and maybe that's a good way to kind of bookend this whole, this whole Mm -hmm. conversation is if, 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 if this hand over here is the owner, you at a certain point, you're going to be, you're going to push information. You're going to be hiring people, pushing information, pushing information. And then at a certain point, if you hired the right people, they're going to, they're going to kind of push it back because they're doing the due diligence and the thoughtful designs and saying, Hey, have you thought about this? Hey, we discovered this. Hey, you have to be aware of this. Hey, sign this. And and that's really kind of the best way that, that one of these, that these relationships happen. Um, So, you know, it's not one-sided. It's very much a symbiotic relationship and they're the most healthy ones at the end of the day. Agreed. Getting get there. Our job as professionals is to get as much information out of your brain and into the field successfully, and leave you with a really great, fun experience that's really low stress. And I love that. Like you know, we've found the opportunity to have this podcast, so that there's you know lots of voices out there that owners can turn to to say, yeah. All right. I, I feel confident. I don't want to work mm-hmm. with, I want to work with professionals that help me feel confident. Yeah. 100%. I think this was, I think this was a great idea. So uh, for everybody listening, if you, if you, if you've listened to all three of these and um, you feel like they were informative, I'll feel free to always email message us. You can email me at LMC at F9 productions.com. Um, you can leave us a five-star review on, on iTunes and all of that good stuff. Um, follow us, follow both of our firms, Tyver Built and F9 Productions on all the plus social media platforms. Anything else to wrap us up, Lindsay? We're, we're here to disseminate information. We love what we do. I think what's, what's so cool is that like, we just want to do what we do every day. And so we just, we look at, oh, the relationship with our clients is an opportunity to really do what we love. And so whatever we can do to kind of I encourage, you know, their involvement in a project and uh, get to see these beautiful designs manifested in real life. It's just that that juice is worth the squeeze. What is up inside the firm listeners? I hope you enjoyed that very special episode uh, by the whole crew over at inside the firm, including Lindsay Pritchard Fox. Uh, It was a great episode and um, without further ado, one of the things we need to go over is 2021. It is well underway and trade shows are still weighing physical exhibitions. So it's time to start planning how you are going to get your continuing education credits this year. ArcCAT can help. Along with manufacturer products, specifications, CAD and BIM, ArcCAT also provides a list of over 150 manufacturers with accredited courses. It's just another free resource ArcCat provides to make your life a little easier. So start earning those credits at arccat.com forward slash CES. That's A-R-C-A-T.com 
forward slash C-E-S. Check those guys out. They help us. If it wasn't for Arquette, we would not be here uh, producing these, this kind of content for everybody. Homeowners included, obviously, as this episode was geared towards homeowners. So please go check them out. Uh, another way you can support this podcast is if you go over to RevitRocketChip.com. That's RevitRocketChip.com. There's a free pom- promo there. You can enroll in the course. You, will get, you get taught by uh, Alex Gore of Inside the Firm. Um, he's there to help you out. We get calls all the time from firms looking to how do they, how do you transfer from AutoCAD over to, or even hand drafting over to Revit? It is a difficult process for a lot of people. Um, quite honestly, the books that are written by Autodesk are, or, or, or its subsidiaries or even in, just independent people are, I don't, we don't think it's the best. Um, we think we've provided the best resource for you guys, for everybody listening to help transition over to that. And so you can just go to Revit Rocket Chip dot com check that out you will help you all day long okay you you will transition you will jump on that rocket ship and you'll fly to the moon with your with your revit uh skills you'll make yourself a more productive person more productive professional and hopefully your whole firm can can follow that lead and you guys expand and 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 go out there and crush it um one other way to support this firm is to go to architectsguide2.com that's architectsguide2.com check out our brand new course, Architect to Builder. Uh, we understand that building can be extremely complicated, but our course, the Architect to Builder course, helps reduce your frustration, provides a clear roadmap with helpful resources to take you from pencil to profit. So check it out over at Architects Guide to that's architectsguide2.com. Check that out today. We think you'll love it. We think you'll love it. And last, but certainly, uh, not least, uh, if thanks for listening for today's episode. We we appreciate all the listeners out there. We are nearing some some big numbers. We keep increasing every month. Um, we love this community that we that we've uh, you guys have helped us build. If without you guys, we wouldn't be here at all. So really appreciate your support. And if you didn't already know, inside the firm is now has a YouTube channel. Obviously, if you're watching YouTube, you're seeing me right now, and you've already seen the other episode. So you can actually watch that episode if you if that's who you prefer. I prefer watching YouTube episodes. I love YouTube YouTube episodes. So subscribe now, and if you if you subscribe, you'll have a chance to win a piece of Inside the Firm merch. That's sort of a whole year long thing that we are trying to promote here since we launched the channel uh, a couple months ago. Or if you prefer podcast style, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five star review for us if you enjoyed the episode. That's how more people will find the podcast, how we can help spread more value, keep building with this with this architect community uh, that, is, that is so precious and valuable um, to everything everything that we're trying to, trying to accomplish here. Uh, but no matter which category you fall into, whether it's YouTube or, or listening terrestrially on a pod over podcast app that you're using, if you're looking for the latest updates on Inside the Firm and special content, follow us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Inside the Firm or Instagram at ITF Podcast. Thank you for joining us for another great episode.